And God, you are greater than anything in our world. Father, we want you to take the place of honor, not just with our lips, but with our lives, with our actions. Father, we want you to be at the place of honor in our lives. We want you to be the one who is seated on the throne of our lives. Father, the big challenge that most of us face is that we want to be king of our own lives. We want to make our own decisions. We want to decide what's best for us. We want to do what we want to do. The Bible recognizes that is our rebellion against your perfect plan for our lives. And we don't want that anymore. Father, this morning we're here because we say that we want you to be seated on the throne, to be the king of our lives, that you're going to be the decision maker. You're going to be the visionary. You're going to be the one who calls us to live the life that you have planned for us. Father, we know that one of the, one of the most, one of the best ways that we can make you king of our lives is to be able to admit our mistakes, our sins, our struggles, our issues, our failures, our lack of forgiveness, our brokenness. Father, even though we may desire to go about life as if nothing really happened, we know that we don't do the things that we want to do. We, we, we end up not doing the things that we need to do. And so, God, we're just going to take a moment right now, each of us individually, to go to you and ask for forgiveness for anything that's in our lives that's entangling us, hindering us from victory in life, the victory that you desire for us. Let's just take a moment, each of us individually, to go to you for forgiveness. And Father, forgive us of those things. And God, we thank you that we are able to have a God who acts in our lives, a God who is living, a God who is wise, a God who is able, a God who is capable, Father, of changing our lives, of making our lives better. Father, someone whom you, whom we are able to know and to relate to and love, someone who cares for us far more than we care for you. Father, we thank you for being that God. We thank you for being our God. And Father, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would just be in this place, would be in our hearts, would be challenging us, encouraging us to live for you. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, um, we're going to do something a little different. I say that pretty much at the beginning of every series, I know. But this morning we're going to do something a little different. Not radically different. We've done radically different before too. But just a little bit different. Um, if you guys have been here over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been talking about this issue of um, being lukewarm. And I thought about what series I want to do after being lukewarm. And to give you guys a little bit of a break um, in some ways, I thought that after beating up on your hearts for about five weeks, I would beat up on your brains for three weeks, okay? So I apologize in advance uh, if, you, uh, if you like that or don't like that. Uh, we will see what happens. Uh, but I, this is actually the series that I've been thinking about the longest 
of any series I've ever done here at BBC. I've been wanting to do this for about two and a half years, but I have to tell you again that my interest in doing it has more to do with where I'm at in my relationship with God than perhaps any other factor, and uh, so you'll have to just bear with me on this one if you don't like it, um, or if you think it's boring, and hopefully it will not be boring, um, but we're going to talk about this issue today. All right, uh, we forgot to mention that in the welcome. We'll do it later. Here's the question. Is God dead? Is God dead? Now, you know, we all know Nietzsche, you know, a couple hundred years ago declared that God is dead. Have you guys seen the joke? Everybody knows the joke, right? God is dead, Nietzsche, and then it says Nietzsche is dead, God, you know, you see that on the internet, right? Um, but the question is, is God dead? But more specifically, the question I want to ask is, do we live our lives as if God is dead? Do we live our lives as such that the agency of God is not really not really potent, not really powerful in our lives. So I want to just spend a couple weeks talking about the living agency of God. What that means is, is that we're going to talk about how God works in our world, not from a little detail perspective, but a big picture perspective of God working in our world and working in our lives and what, for, what it means when we say that God is living and that he is active in our world. Okay, now we're going to start real easy this morning, just talking about the living nature of God. We're going to start real simple here this morning, and then we'll get a little bit deeper over the next couple of weeks and talk about this living agency of God. Well, here's our strategy. Today, we're going to talk about the living and the dead and sort of this concept of living and dead in the Bible and also what it means for us when we declare that God is a living God and what it means for us when we say that he is active in our world. Because the problem comes in if you've ever shared the gospel with people, which I hope that you're doing on a weekly basis, inviting people to church and letting them know about who God is and, and what his son has done for us. But if, you, if you're doing that, then one of the questions that you come up with frequently from people is, I don't understand how God works in the world. I mean, is a hurricane an act of God or not? Is an earthquake an act of God or not? If some crazy guy says that God told him to blow up the Twin Towers, is that an act of God or not? What does it mean when we talk about the living agency of God? By the way, if you're interested, and maybe only one or two of you will be, this is a big issue in theology right now, and a lot of people are writing books on this uh, because it just happens to be the conversation du jour, um, which is how God works and sort of what his... What, what his um, sort of modus operandi is in the world. How does he work in our world today? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to see what the Bible says. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 10. So you'll want to turn there in your Bibles. It'll be up on the Jumbotron as well. But Jeremiah chapter 10, and we're going to look at some of the great passages in the Old Testament um, this week. Well, one specifically that deals with this living nature of God. So Jeremiah chapter 10, I'm going to turn there myself um, and you guys can open there as well while I'm turning. And we're going to walk down through this passage. The other thing is, is that you'll want to stick your finger on there because it's kind of long. And it's one you'll want to read when you get home as well. Always double check what the pastor says. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. All right, <clears throat> here's what we're going to do. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 10 here. They cut down a tree. Wait, oh, sorry. I went, there we go. Okay, here we go. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O Israel. 
This is what the Lord says. And by the way, this, let me just preface this. This is Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament prophets. The main thing we need to know about Jeremiah today is that he's one of the prophets who hated the sin of idolatry more than any other prophet. Uh, maybe Isaiah was up there with him. But Jeremiah and Isaiah both hated the sin of idolatry. And so this is an oracle. This is a prophecy of God through Jeremiah about this issue of idolatry that we'll talk about a little bit today. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not act like the other nations who try to read their future in the stars or Mayan calendars or anything else that's popular today, okay? Do not be afraid of their predictions, even though other nations are terrified by them. Their ways are futile and foolish. These people cut down a tree and craftsmen carves an idol out of it. They decorate it with gold and silver and then fasten it securely with hammer and nails so that it won't fall over. Their gods are like helpless scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak and they need to be carried because they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of such gods for they can neither harm you nor do you any good. Lord, there is no one like you for you are great and your name is full of power. Okay, so everyone see where it's going? There's the setup of explaining about idols, false idols. These idols made of wood that are basically like scarecrows in a melon patch in a cucumber field. They are basically just created by people. And then in contrast is God. Lord, there is no one like you, for you are great and your name is full of power. Who would not fear you, O king of nations? That title belongs to you alone. Among all the wise people of the earth and in all the kingdoms of the world, there is no one like you. But God made the earth by his power and he perseveres it, sorry, preserves it by his wisdom. With his own understanding, he stretched out the heavens. When God speaks in the thunder, the heavens roar with rain. He causes the clouds to rise over the earth. He sends the lightning with the rain and releases the wind from his storehouses. Okay, you have a poetic picture here of what God is doing in contrast to these idols. Let's talk about this. How and why God works in our world today. This living agency of God. Is is God living? Is God active? Does God work in our world? More specifically, does God work in our lives? More specifically, do we live our lives as if God works in our lives? Or do we live in our lives as if God is a secondary type of function or being out there that does not work in our, in our lives really at all? Um, let's three ideas. If you want to follow along in your handout, we'll just be we'll be uh, going along that path today. Um, three ideas we'll be talking about here is that the gods of our world are dead. Let's start here. Basically, the Bible is uh, really a not a big fan of idolatry. Let's talk about this issue of idolatry just for a second. What was idolatry? Anybody remember what was idolatry? Yeah, okay, good. Worship and idols. Uh, <laughs> too much sleep. <laughs> Worshiping idols. There you go. Not idols. Idols. Worshiping idols. Worshiping false gods, right? Worshiping things that, um, or giving, investing time and energy into things in the hope that they will change our lives in ways that won't. We could call that an idol too. Um, in the Old Testament, this issue of idolatry was a bigger issue in some ways than it is today, although today it's sort of different in a way. Let's talk about it in the Old Testament world. In the Old Testament world, idolatry was oftentimes defined very strictly as being what? Someone actually creating a God, bowing down to that God, and worshiping that God in the hope that that God would do something. Now, in our time period today, in the modern time period, people talk about idols in church. If you've been in church for a while, you've heard someone talk about idols. What do they generally mean when they say idols there in church? Anybody want to guess? 
What do you think? What would be an idol? Okay, good. Right, in, you guys are naming some things. Anything that would basically take our eyes off God, that we would worship more than, worship more than God, that we would serve more than God. And, and so there are a lot of similarities if we say that our idol is a, an actor or an idol is a celebrity or our idol is TV or our idol is computer, right? But there's, there's some similarities. There's also a little bit of differences. But there, the similarities are enough that we're going to take those similarities and use those this week as we talk about this living agency of God. The thing, though, that we want to remember is that the Bible makes it very clear that these gods that we create by our own hands and by our own mind are ultimately dead gods. They do not have the power to do anything. They do not have the agency to do anything. They do not think. They do not feel. They are dead. The nature of people is to create idols and God. Let's talk about this for a minute because this is going to be a truth that we will deal with in our world, especially if we are involved in sharing the gospel with other people. Uh, we've talked about this in the past. We did a series on this about two years ago, but what will happen is, is that Everyone has the desire, a God-given desire, to have something in their lives that's greater than themselves, okay? So we Christians, we know that this desire to know the other is a function of our relationship with God, that, that we know that there really is a God who loves us, who is out there in the world, and, that, and we yearn to be a part of that relationship with that God. We want to know Him, we want to serve Him, we want to do what He calls us to do, for everyone else in the world, though, they may not necessarily recognize that there is a God, but they have many, many other definitions for what God is or this other is. Everything from, if you get a philosopher, they'll say actually say the other because they don't want to put any other word with it, all the way to an, a false God, to an idol, to destiny, to fate, to UFOs, aliens, whatever the case may be. There's something else out there. I don't know, Tom Cruise, Thetans, right? You know, if you're into that, right? Whatever it is, there's something else out there that pushes us towards something bigger than ourselves. There's always something other to ourselves that people cannot explain, though people try in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, in fact, you probably know people who are not believers who go out of their way to avoid the God of the Bible and try to explain other events through other systems or through other explanations. You know, lots of people will believe in UFOs maybe here more in the Bay Area than other parts of the world, but they will believe in UFOs over just believing that there is a God who created the world. The problem comes in, though, is when we talk about this issue of life and this issue of agency. The reason is, is because our claims, and this is where the hinge of the messages are going to be, but our claims about God also are representative of the God that we believe in and how he behaves and how he acts. Let me say it another way. If I believe in UFOs, which I do not, but I like them because they're fun to, to use as examples. But if I believed in UFOs, then I would say that UFOs are real, they're alive, but their agency is limited. Why? Because basically what they do is they come here to Earth on occasion and snap up some cows or some hapless victims and experiment on them and then put them back in the cow field or cornfield from which they came, right? So the agency of UFOs is very small and very limited. But at the same time, if we as Christians believe that God is an all-powerful, all-loving God, then what does that say about his life and what does that say about his action in our world? What does that say about his agency? Well, we'll take that up in just a couple seconds. The only power 
Well, let me take a step back. Let me give one more. I need one more bridge example here this morning. Um, In the ancient world, as in the world today, people needed to believe in something greater than themselves. When we are like the Laodiceans, if you were here the last couple of weeks, we talked about being lukewarm. When we have so much material wealth and so much material possessions, then it's easier for us not to worry about the other. The other is something that is just a minor aspect of our lives, although I would argue it's there. But when you live in a context where you don't have material possessions, where you don't have a lot of wealth, where you face, where you face famine and war and destruction on a regular basis, it is much more, it being this other, this, this belief that there's something greater than yourself out there, it is much more powerful, much more significant. Powerful is not the right word. It is much more significant, much more important in a person's life. It is natural for people who have rebelled against God to do what? Create God in their own image. That's what we did in the garden, right? We said, God, we don't like your plan of not eating this fruit. We don't like your plan of obeying you. We don't like your plan. And so what we're going to do is instead, we are going to set up our own plan. Adam and Eve did that, and we do the same thing. Instead of worshiping the real God, which, by the way, has certain amount of, uh, how shall I say, discipline for his children, right? Is that a nice way of saying it? Um, instead of worshiping the real God who has certain goals and values and discipline for his children, we would rather do what? Well, what did people in the ancient world do? Same as today. They would create for themselves an idol that they could worship, but an idol is dead. And an idol doesn't have the power to correct or discipline. You know what? The, the, there's lots of different idols, and I'm not necessarily an expert on idolatry, but you know one of the interesting idols? If you, have you guys ever seen the movie Gladiator? I'm not sure what it's rating, so I won't recognize, recommend it for families. But if you've seen the movie Gladiator, it's pretty good, right? And, and in it, the, the Russell Crowe, the hero, has um, the uh, household gods uh, that were common in the Romans, Roman period. He had those little gods that he would carry around with him, right? And he would bow down and worship them. And you know what those gods were for? They were the family gods, and they were oftentimes the gods of encouragement. In other words, they latched on to these little figurines because it encouraged them and made them feel good about themselves, right? And that's what happened with Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe wanted those gods because it made him, it felt, made him feel good about it. But if this piece of wood that Russell Crowe had in Gladiator was carved by another man out of just a piece of wood, what power or livingness does it have in it? Does it have any life in it whatsoever? Well, of course, in the modern world, we would go, oh, no, you know, of course not, right? But in the ancient world, people were so convinced that they needed something beyond themselves because of war, because of death. I mean, people in the ancient world died when they were 30. I mean, that's ripe old age, right? But yet, in our world, we also have idolatry, and they are not living, but they're a little bit more deceptive than that. Let me just move on, because we spent some time on idolatry in the past. I'm going to just tie some of these loose ends together so we can talk about God. The only power that an idol has is the power that we give it, right? Russell Crowe, that idol that he held in his hand, those idols, those, those, those family idols, they had no power over him. They didn't make him a better gladiator. They didn't make him better at anything. Better husband, better father, didn't, didn't make him better at anything, right? But yet, the power that the idols had is that it was power that was given by him to that idol. So, this is where we'll see a branch of similarity, and we can talk about God as a living God. When we go into our world today as modern people, 
most of us are not going to be tempted to bow down in front of a wooden statue. And when I say bow down in front of a wooden statue, I mean as to worship the wooden statue, right? Although we, we know cultures where that's still common, right? But for most of us in the modern world, to bow down before a statue seems a little bit unusual. And yet at the same time, there are still going to be idols in our lives that are did, but yet we invest them with power. You know, um, I'm no fan of celebrity here in the United States, but celebrity could be an example of an idol. You know, if, if, if the, uh, I guess the sales volume of the magazine, the tabloid magazines at the supermarket are any indication, there are a lot of people who sort of have worship for idols, but they are people who live in our world. You know, whether it be from Michael Jackson to, I don't know, Angelina Jolie to take your pick of the people, you know, that follow them around and, you know, just, you know, just worship them in a way. But whether we use a piece of wood or whether we use another person, there's a parallel that we have to draw. There's a line that we have to draw at this point, which is that these idols, these things that we look to as being the other in our life have no power other than what we give them. Now, this is really important because a wood piece of wood, a wood statue, everyone here would agree and would say, you know what? That has no agency. It has no power because it's just a piece of wood. We're modern people. We know that. But at the same time, any of the idols that we have in our world today, whether it be our success, our money, our celebrities, our politicians, our government, whatever it may be, these idols that we have, this sense of other, whether it be our sense of destiny or fate or reincarnation or any of these other things that can become idols in our lives, these things also have really no power in our lives other than what we give them, okay? They have no power over than what we give them. Listen, um, who shall I use? Oh, Tom Cruise. He's my favorite. Tom Cruise comes here today, right? Uh, he's the Messiah, right, of Scientology. So he's a good example. He comes here today, and you know what? I'm struggling because I worship him, right? I mean, I read about him in the tabloids. I wish I could be Tom Cruise. I wish I could, I wish I could have hair like him. I wish I could be as short as him. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, I wish I could do the things that, you know, he does. And yet, at the same time, all of the power that he has over me is what? Pretty much solely the power that I give to him is the limit of the power that he has. The Bible sets up this contrast because the Bible wants us to understand that there is really only one agent of power in the world that has power over our lives to the extent that it can change our lives for the better or for the worse. Now, there's this asterisk to that, of course. The asterisk to that are what? Number one, we have power, some agency over our lives. We also may say that the, the enemy has a certain amount of very limited agency over our lives. But when you think about it, from a biblical perspective, God is the creator of the world. And we're going to look back at this in Jeremiah for a second because this, um, we're going to bring this in in a second where Jeremiah introduces this idea. But God is the creator of the world and God is the one who orchestrates the world, conducts the world, and runs the world in the way that he wants. But that brings up a problem. And I'm off track my message already, but that's okay. It brings up a problem because if God is the one who is the power in our universe, if he is the greater factor of all things in our world, then what does that mean he does in our life on a day-to-day basis? Well, for the average lukewarm Christian, it means he does what? Nothing. So there's a huge disconnect there. Because for the average lukewarm person who goes through life, God does nothing in their lives. And yet the Bible says that 
The world is full of false idols who have no power, and yet God is the one who has the power. God is the one who is active and vibrant and alive in our world. And yet there's a disconnect between those two positions. More practically, what's the old expression? Many of you probably heard it before, that most of us are practical atheists, right? Because we live our lives practically as if God doesn't exist. He's not real. And even more specifically, I think, from our discussion about lukewarm Christians, you might be a lukewarm Christian if the power of God is not active in your life on a daily basis. At least if the Bible's true. Now, let's talk about this. Let me define a little bit further about this livingness. Oh, oh, let me, yeah, here we go. Okay, let me just start here with 10. That, that was just my preface. Here's 10. Okay. God tells us, do not act like the other nations who try to read their future in the stars, man predictions, what the celebrities say or do. I mean, you know, you just go down the list. Do not be afraid of their predictions. Their ways are futile and foolish. They cut down a tree and a craftsman carves an idol. They decorate it with gold and silver <clears throat> and then fasten it securely with hammer and nails so they won't fall over. Their gods are like helpless scarecrows in a cucumber field. That's a great uh, picture there of what the, these false gods are. In the same way, again, there are differences between modern idolatry and ancient world idolatry. But you know what? When it comes to celebrity or TV or job or uh, you know, someone that we worship um, in the world today or fate or aliens or manifest destiny or anything like that. The thing is, is that anything that we feel that we have in our lives that we worship or that we subserve or that we give ourselves over to, um, the Bible is going to consider to be dead and to be worthless next to what? Not in relation to something else, but next to the power of God. Listen, let me say it another way like this, because this is going to be the challenge. Most of us here in the San Francisco Bay Area are familiar with the idea of fate, right? <clears throat> and some of you may feel, or you may even use that word, you, may, you probably know people who talk about that word. Well, it's fate that this happened, or it's karma that's happened, or it's you know, your destiny that this happened, right? I mean, when we meet someone that we like and we fall in love, we say, you know, we feel like it's fate. Now, as Christians, we say, oh, it's God's will. But sometimes when Christians use that, I feel like you just mean you're saying fate rather than God's will. Because if God's will is his will, is it an active living will? Or is it just sort of a neutral sort of thing? I mean, let me ask a question. And I'm off my text again. But let me just ask a question. <clears throat> When I met my wife, if I were to say that my wife and I got married and, you know, it's because it was God's will, do I mean that it was God's will that we just happened to be in the same place at the same time, uh, Christian fate, or do I mean that God specifically, the God of the universe, actually brought her and I together at the same time, in the same place specifically, like moving two chess pieces together, or do I mean something different? Because in the one, it seems awful empty, but in the other, it seems often sort of strong-willed, like God's moving us around like chess pieces, like Haiti is like all about God, right? I mean, God did that. That's an act of God. That's what we say, right? But is that really true? And what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, we can't cover all of that today, but it's a teaser for the next couple of weeks. They decorate it with gold and silver, and they fast securely with hammer and nails. And then in contrast to that, well, the Bible says, do not be afraid of such gods, for they can neither harm you nor do you any good. Now, there's lots of passages like this in the Bible. The Bible is saying here that there is no power that an idol can do because the idol has no agency. It's not alive. It is dead. It has no power over you. So anything that you, that you feel has power over in your life, except for the living God, you have given power over to yourself. Let me say it again. 
Anything that has power over you in your life, you have given that power to yourself rather than, except for God. He's the only exception to that. Now, some of you may say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, because I'm a little confused here. You're saying that nothing has power over me except for God in this world. And I'm saying, yes, that is true. Now, do you have power over yourself? Yes. And are you your own worst enemy at times? Yes. We're not, we're not denying that at all. Some of you say, what about the government? The government makes me pay taxes. You know, uh, that's power over me, right? The government says I can stay here with a visa or not a visa, a green card or not a green card. Uh, isn't that power over me? Well, it is a certain amount of power over you. But does it have the power to change the way you worship God? and your relationship with God? No. Because if we accept that God and his relationship is the most important thing that we will have or possess in our world, there is nothing in the world that can take us away or separate us from the power of God in our lives. Nothing. And by the way, if God is powerful enough to uh, wreck Haiti, which by the way, I'm not saying, but people may argue that, if God is powerful enough to bring two people together to get married like chess pieces, which also I am not saying, but some people may. If God is powerful enough to create the universe, God is powerful enough to work out your tax situation. Right? Now, I, this, I'm glad you laughed, but you know, I mean, you know, this is, I'm doing this series for this reason because we would say yes, but then what we experience in our day-to-day life becomes sort of the issue, doesn't it, you know? You know, my wife and I were talking about the power of God this week because Obviously, the economy is bad and everybody's hurting right now. And we were just talking about God's provision and his action in, in our lives. And, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, God acts when he wants to act, when we need him to act. But he doesn't act just because we want him to act in an arbitrary action without a plan or without a reason. When we look back in our past, and we see the living activity and agency of God in our lives, it is very clear what God has done. We may not know what he is going to do in the future, but we can trust in the past and testify to the past of what God has done. He acts in a way that is important and significant to him, but it may not necessarily be the way that we always want it to be. Now, we're not going to talk about that a whole lot today, but this is also part of this activity of God. The problem is, and the issue here this morning, is that the one true God is alive and being living means that there are certain peculiarities about God and the way that he is going to act. The Bible says, Lord, there is no one like you, for you are great and your name is full of power. Who would not fear you, O king of nations? That title belongs to you alone. Among all the wise people of the earth and all the kingdoms of the world, there is no one like you. The creator of the world is a living being. Now, this is where this differentiates us from idols, right? Because idols are something that we create, we manufacture, that we imbue with power. But God is someone who is other than ourselves. He is someone who is greater than ourselves. He is someone who we did not create, we did not manufacture, we did not have a say in how God would be as a person. Um, we did not get a say in what he would do, although we like to make sure that we have a say, right? God, I have to have a Mercedes. God, you cannot send an earthquake as long as I'm living here in the Bay Area. God, you have to build the building this week. God, you have to, right, then, you know, you go down the list. The problem is, is that one of the difficulties of worshiping God 
is that God is a living being. What do we say, what do we mean when we say that God is living? What do we mean when we say that God is living? What does it mean to say that God lives? Does God breathe? Does God eat? Does God cry? What do you think? What does it mean when we say that God is living? What is the Bible trying to claim by that? What are the hallmarks of being alive? In the physical sense, there are some physical aspects such as breathing, right? Uh, we all breathe. I think we all realize that God does not breathe perhaps in the same way that we do, right? But what does it mean when we, when we go down to the other things? Does God eat? Well, eat is a physical act, but it's also more than a physical act, isn't it? Let me just play devil's advocate for a second. Eating is a physical act, but it's also what else kind of act too? Anybody want to guess? It's an act of what in some situations? Come on, you guys are first service. You're the, you know, you're the early birds. You know the stuff. Second service, they're the ones, oh, I don't know. Come on. <laughs> Fel- okay, good. Right, David. Very good. Fellowship. That a meal can actually be a very powerful way of fellowship. Who actually had fellowship over a meal? Je- wow. Okay, right. Jesus, right? Good. Uh, eating can also be an act of what? Not just fellowship, but what else? Come on. Huh? Well, it can be idolatrous, true. That's right. That's, you're right. That's right. You can, that's right. I was thinking of positive things, but Dorothy's right. It can be a negative thing, too. That's right. That's right. Um, what else? Eating can be an act of what else? Come on. Former Catholics. Come on, tell me. Or still Catholics. Fine. Tell me. It can be an act of what? Worship. There you go, right? We eat the body and blood of the Lord, right? And so eating can be an act of worship as well. So let me just ask the question again. If I had asked you, most of you, or the average, let's say the average, not say BBC here, but the average churchgoer, you know, an hour before the message, does God eat? Everybody would have said no. But let me ask you again, does God eat? Well, I don't know. It's a little more confused. I mean, Jesus, God, Jesus ate, right? That was in a human form. But I mean, if Jesus came here today and we were having our potluck, because we were going to have, would he eat with us? Well, I think so, wouldn't he? Because it would be an act of fellowship, an act of relationship, an act of love. The God of the universe would sit down and, and, and eat at his banqueting table together with us. And so the thing is, is that God's livingness, his activity, transcends just the physical. But when we start thinking about it, it raises a whole can of worms and a whole can of questions about how God behaves and how God acts and what he does in our lives. You see, the interesting thing about the eating parallel which we can use is that God chooses is volitional. He chooses to eat with us because he loves us. In the same way, when we say that God is living, we say that God has a choice, right? That God has a certain amount of volition or will or ability to choose. And so we see God making choices throughout the Bible, don't we? And that's the hard part, right? Because God seems to make choices that don't seem to always gel with what we think is right or, let's just be honest, God doesn't make the choices that we want God to make, right? I mean, Jacob have I loved and Esau I hated, right? That's what the Bible says. Well, if you're Esau, I mean, I'm not sure that Esau cared much for God, to be honest with you. But um, if you're Esau, God's not making the kind of choice that you want him to make, is he? No. And yet we see that God makes choices and that God is, in fact, living and, in fact, volitional 
in fact, has ability and agency. And by the way, as soon as you introduce the fact that God is living, it changes the equation of the universe. Why does it change the equation of the universe? Because if God was not living, the universe would operate like the uh, classical scientists would like the universe to operate, on a set of laws by which A does A and B does B and, you know... Um, Everything is, I won't give mathematical examples, but the, everything, one plus one is always two, okay? And yet, as soon as God is living, it changes because the living nature of God changes the whole equation because now God has a choice. Now God has the ability to decide something that he likes or doesn't like. God has the ability to love and, in fact, almost what? Hate, right? I mean, the Bible uses the word hate. I know we Christians, you know, I'm sorry, we churchgoers in America today, God loves everybody and, you know, it's all hunky-dory, right? I'm okay, you're okay, all that stuff, right? But yet at the same time, the Bible used the word hate, you know? There are certain things that God hates and, there's, and it's not just, you know, not just a list of four or five sins that we can make up and apply to other people, but it's much more complex than that. Because by the way, when we do that, we're reducing the agency of God to what? Just a formula or equation. And we Christians sometimes are as guilty of that as, as non-Christian people as well, which is making a living God into a list of rules or into a list of equations. So what does it mean when we say that God lives? Does God breathe? Does God eat? Does God cry? You know, here's the interesting thing about what the Bible's saying here that I don't want you to miss. It's kind of a nuance, but God lives to the extent that he even has a name by which he may be called. You know, the Bible spends a lot of time talking about the name of God. Not so much that I think that, um, you know, this is, uh, I blog sometimes for Koinonia, um, the Zonervan blog, and, um, you know, Bill Mounts, who's a famous professor of Greek, uh, talked about the name of God and how sometimes it brings it in a blog a couple months ago, and talks about how people, um, he, Bill was talking about how, um, how when you look at it in the original language, that, you know, there is a certain amount of ambivalence there, even though a lot of people try, ambivalence may not be the right word, but just for the sake of discussion today, certain amount of ambivalence about it, and uh, even while people try to get really hostile about what it has to be, you know, Jehovah and, you know, that sort of thing, or it has to be Yahweh, or it has to be this, or it has to be Adonai, or whatever, you know, it has to be. And, um, and, and the thing, the funny thing is, is that, <clears throat> the funny thing is, is that God is not so much concerned about how we pronounce his name other than the fact that we know that he does have a name. And he wants us to know he has a name because he wants us to know that we, he is a person and not an equation. Now, let me give you how this equation works for lukewarm people. Here we go, right? All right, so I'm a lukewarm person and I go to church on occasion, Easter and Christmas, and I have something good happen in my life and it's all about me. Oh, I'm so smart. Oh, I'm so good, right? But then something bad happens into my life, right? And I say, okay, here is the divine drink machine of prayer requests, right? I need, let's see, 75 cents. That means three prayers will buy me uh, help with my job. Ching, there you go. Put that. Now, let's see. I need also help while I'm there, God. I need help with family. Ching, ching, ching. And then I get my prayers out and they're answered and everything goes along the way I want to, right? We just order what we want from God and we expect Him to deliver it, right? Fix my life, God, as if we have no agency or ability that got us in the place to begin with. Oh, that's for next week. Sorry. But. <laughs> we go through life and we expect God to just sort of do what we want him to do without realizing that he has a person with a name. Hey, you know what? 
let me just tell you, this really, Valentine's Day, let me give you a hint, guys. Go to your wife and tell your wife, I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do, only when I want you to do it. And when I'm not really using you or, or need you, just stay out of my way. That's going to go over real well, right? Rich, you going to try that? Oh, yeah, he says, yeah, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> He's saying no. Right? Why not? Why would you not do that? Huh? Dangerous. Okay, now. All right, now, now that's true. Now, and the funny thing about what Rich is saying, dangerous is you're right. And, it's, and you know what? It's, I, I mean, that's, I'm laughing, but there's nothing more true about that because when we speak to God that way, it's dangerous also because God has feelings and God has emotion. God wants to sit down and eat with us, you know? God is alive, but do we treat him as if he's alive? Because sometimes we treat God I hate to say it, we treat him like we wouldn't treat a person because we wouldn't treat a person so poorly as we treat God. Now, we're all guilty. You can just go ahead and flash the hypocrite sign over my head right now. I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody. But the Bible enforces over and over again that God is alive. And we know one of the great nuances, one of the great examples of his livingness is the fact that he has a name by which we can call him. He's not, hey, wood statue. Hey, drink machine, a prayer request in the sky. Let me order something up here right? But he's actually someone that has a name that, by which we can speak to and we can call. By the way, don't worry about whether you call him God or whatever. It doesn't matter. The, when Bill wrote that blog, I commented on, it, on his blog and I said, you know, because some people were kind of attacking him or something, you know, some blogs, you know. And I said, you know, I, I pastor a church where a lot of people don't even speak English as first language. And people call me Douglas, Douglas, D- uh, D- I mean, all kinds, I mean, can't even pronounce it, you know? And I just put on there, like, I'm just happy that they call me by anything, that they call me by their name, right? And God is that, has enough grace that he knows when you speak to him, but it doesn't change the fact that he's living and wants you to speak to him rather than just order him around or tell him what to do. God lives to the extent he doesn't have his name by which he's called. And, and the Bible's going to bring up another thing here, too, uh, which is this, the creator of the world is an active being. And we look here at Jeremiah 10, and, and we have a, a bit of metaphor. When I say metaphor, I mean, it doesn't make it not true, but it's trying to say more than just the very literal here. He says this, he says, but Lord, there's no one like you for you're great and your name is full of power. Who would not fear you, O king of nations? That title belongs to you. Among all the wise people of the earth and all the kings of the world, there's no one like you. It goes on to say, but God made the earth by his power. He preserves it by his wisdom with his own understanding, his own ability. He stretched out the heavens. When he speaks in the thunder, the heavens roar with rain. He causes the clouds to rise over the earth. He sends the lightning with the rain and releases the wind from his storehouses, right? Now, okay, we know that he can do that, right? And the Bible uses this example to let us know that if God is able to do powerful things, then he can do little things in our lives as well. But the problem is, is that we are tend When we talk about the activity of God, we tend to think that his activity is limited to the big things rather than the little things. We can believe, we can believe that an earthquake is an act of God, but can we believe that God calling you to this place this morning could be an act of God without having anything to do with me? It has nothing to do with me. The fact that God could bring you to San Jose to actually do something with your life and by the way, when I say do something with life, I know you're the CEO of your own company. I know that. I'm not talking about that. I mean, do something with your life to serve him. Is that an act of God? 
You know, this came up in discussion in Life Group two weeks ago because people are always like, especially younger folks, although older folks have already, they've already done it. So you can't say, oh, it's just young folks, it's not me. But a lot of times when younger folks, when they first get their job out of college or they're still in their 20s and 30s and they move somewhere and they feel like, I don't know if I'm really going to stay here long term, so I'm not going to get involved in church. I'm not going to get really very heavily involved. But why is that a lie? Well, that's a lie because you're assuming there that God doesn't have the power to do something meaningful in your life in the three or four years that you're somewhere. Of course, those three or four years, for a lot of them, turns into 10, 15, 20 years, and they end up staying there anyway. And then, you know what? The whole, their whole life of faith, their whole life of service to the Lord, their whole life to, with their one chance to glorify God is gone because they wasted it. The creator of the world is an active being because he is active. Listen, to be alive, oh, let me throw up the slide. To be alive, living is often defined in relationship to the ability to do. Do I have a biologist in the house? Any biologists here? No. Dennis, living, I know you're not a biologist, but being living is often defined as the ability to act, to think, to do, to relate, although I would say that's sort of a, a Christian view, the relate part, um, because it's a biblical idea. But this, you know, what makes an organism different from a rock? Well, an organism can do things. We could argue that an organism doesn't think, right? A cell doesn't necessarily think, although I guess it depends on how you define the word think. But it does things, right? It has volition. It acts. It moves. It does things. I'm not a biologist. I hated biology. I was a chemistry major, but I hated biology. And anytime they tried to get, make me go into biology, I was like, no way. I find every excuse to get out of biology. Just, I, sorry. Just not a biologist. Never learned biology. But it's defining something to do. And God himself, as a living creature who has a name, is able to do. And that's what makes him living, or vice versa. But because he's living, that's what makes him able to do. And by the way, do we think that God is lazy and does nothing all day? As my wife likes to say, sit up there and eat bonbons and, you know, do frou-frou things? No. Do we really believe that God, because listen, I mean, in, in, in 10 hours a day, you guys are productive, right? You get up, you go to work, you conquer the world, you, you know, you, you invent things, you do stuff, right? I mean, you're productive. What does God do all day long? Seriously, what does he do? Does he have a day job? Well, now be careful how you answer that question because, I mean, if he does, what do you think it is? Drawing all people to himself? Glorifying himself? Reaching out to people? I don't know. What would it be? Now, don't tell me that there's six billion people on the world, in the world, and so God's got to divide his time six billion times because I'm not sure that the agency of God is limited in that way, right? But if God is working in our lives, in our world, what does that mean? Is God, right now, is God taking a break or is he doing something? Seriously, what do you think? Is he here? Think so? Actively or passively? Well, now you guys are answering actively because you want me, you know, I, you know, you think I want you to say that, but I don't know. Do we live that way? All right. 
The one true God is powerful. Of course, we can't answer all these questions this morning, and I'm out of time already, and we haven't even got to the third point. But we'll pick it up some more next week. The one true God is powerful. The one true God is powerful. It, I wanted to use the word potent because really powerful is, gives you the wrong sense. Powerful, we, we take powerful in English to mean strong, you know. But really when we think about a biblical idea of God, God is potent. He is able. He is capable. You know, he is, he is capable. He has the ability to do what he wants to do. And in acting, God demonstrates it through oftentimes a powerful way. But if God moves you to love your wife better or to love your husband better, I'm not sure that that would qualify in English as being powerful. I mean, maybe if you have a heart of stone like me, that would be, you know, that would be good. Um, you know, emotionally constipated and all the stuff that I am being a guy, right? I mean, maybe that would be a powerful movement, right? But for most of us, we wouldn't necessarily qualify that as being powerful, We'd qualify that as something different, but it demonstrates the ability of God to work in our world. Listen, if God whispers in someone's ear, listen to the person who's going to come to you today and speak to you about God, about me, and testify to who I am. Does God do that? Is that powerful? Well, it's not so much powerful, but it's his agency working in our world. Does he do that, by the way? If you share the gospel with people, do you think that God whispers in their ear and lets them know? Now, I use that as an example because that's an easy one. We all know if we've been in church for a while, and if, by the way, first time in church ever, that's awesome. But if you've been in church for a while, you know that the Holy Spirit testifies and goes before us as we speak. And of course, the Holy Spirit is acting on the what? Of God. The agency of God. <clears throat> God's power is total over all the earth. The reason why the Bible uses metaphors all over the place about God being powerful is because to capture the mind of the ancient world person and even the person today, the Bible wants people to know that God has the ability to do the big things, but he doesn't miss the little things, but it's, the, his power is so great that he can do the big things as well. You know, Colossians 1 is a famous example, right? It talks about how God is the power, uh, specifically through Jesus Christ, to hold together the entire universe, right, and orchestrate it coordinate it, make it happen. So this is the question. This is the issue. God's power is total over all the universe. You could argue that besides the asterisks of our lives, that God is the only agent in our universe. You know why I can argue that? Because if God chose as a living being tomorrow to say, I am done with this universe and it is gone, bye-bye. There is nothing you and I can do about it. I'm sorry. We could protest. We could talk about our rights. We could go to Sacramento. We can wave our signs. God, you can't destroy the universe. We have a right to live. But it doesn't matter because God is the one who has the power. Now, when I say that, that makes God sound sort of capricious, doesn't it? It makes God seem sort of evil, sort of. But you know what? You're not evil in the world that you created, are you? You're not evil in the world where which you are the only good thing. God chooses to always do what is good and right. But you know what the truth is? Can I tell you a little secret this morning that they don't teach it in Sunday school? Is this okay? But it's going, it, some of you might not like it. Okay? You know, God is good not just because we believe he is good. That's the Sunday school answer. We say God is good because, because 
we just believe in our hearts that God is good and it makes sense in our logical systems that God is good. But if you witness to an atheist who talks about all the barbarisms in the Bible, they'll say, well, God is not good. And you know why? Because human agency doesn't get to decide whether God is good or not. You know why God is good? Because God says he's good and what he does is good. That's the reason why God is good. God has decided that what he does is good. If you guys ever seen like Star Trek or any of the alternative universe or Star Wars or any of them, you know, I don't know. Does Star Wars have alternative universe? I don't think so. I don't know. But okay. But if you watch the science fiction, there's alternate universe where one guy is good and the alternate universe, they're bad. You get the idea if you never watched any science fiction your entire life, right? And you know what? The universe that we live in, God is good because God decided that this is what good is and I am good. You know what that means? That means that he may not fit our definition of what is good. He may not fit our definition of what we'd like God to be because we don't have the decision to make that decision. But you know what it also means? <clears throat> it also means that because God decided that what he is good, he cannot be ungood. He cannot be evil. He cannot be anything other than good because he is the one who has defined what good is to begin with. So some of you will make, that will make you feel bad. But I want you to feel good about this because God has total power over all of the earth to the point where when we listen to God and we obey him, that all that power and that goodness is directed into our lives because he loves us. And that at that point in time, when we follow God and we are obedient to him and we commit our lives to him, we are at that point, rather than protesting and rebelling against the one agency, the one act, the one agent in our world that really has power, instead of fighting against it, we are actually working with it. What happens, <clears throat> by the way, when a car is rolling towards you and you, you know, it's in neutral, rolling towards you down a hill and you go like this to stop it? Is it going to be a fun few minutes there? No, it's not. Why? Because the one big agent that's on that hill, the car, not you, is moving this way. And when you do this, the power that you have against that car, the power to do anything other, I mean, you're not going to be like talking on your cell phone, hey, honey, I'm just holding back this car, it's trying to roll down the hill. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's a good idea. I can play some video games on my new droid that I got, yeah. Uh, okay, d you know, while we're, no, you're not going to be doing that, why not? Because you can't. You're spending all your time fighting against the one power, the one agent that's acting on that hill. In the same way, when you rebel against God, the one force that's working towards good in this world, you are fighting against. And if you turn around and submit your life to God, obey him, commit your life to God, stop being lukewarm, run the race so as to win it, get a hold and go in the direction of the car, what happens? You jump on top of the hood of the car and you sail down that hill and it's a pretty thing until you crash at the end. But there's no crash, of course, because, because God doesn't, is not going to allow the crash to happen. Why doesn't he allow the crash? That actually does. It results in our death, but that also results in our resurrection to the glory of God. And so here's the thing. Real quickly here this morning. This does not mean that all action on earth is representative of God. We'll take that up next week. Don't have time uh, today. Uh, we talked about different agency. I'll pick that up next week. Lukewarm people don't see the power of God in action. You know, they spend too much time worrying about other things. The car, the force, that's the big, the elephant in the room force that's rolling down the hill. They're trying to not really... They're not really on board with that force. They're trying to just keep it at bay, trying to do other things. Oh, my career, my career, my career, my career. And yet at the same time, the elephant, the force that's in the room, um, little F, not big F, 
the force that's in the room, the power, the agency that's there, they are rebelling against, they're not working with, they're fighting against. It's not helping them. But when we believe that God acts in our lives and we take hold of the, His activity, we, 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 we get alongside of His activity, we get on His agency, we're working with Him, then God has the power then to really make a difference in our lives. Why? Because God is not a car, is He? This is where this analogy breaks down. You want to know the difference between a car and a God? One is what? Dead. And one is? And you know what? When you, you know what? When you have like a four-year-old who's trying to beat you up, you put your hand on their forehead, you know, and they swing in here, right? You know, if you try to do that to God, God's a person. And he'll just say, okay, after a while, I'm not, I'm going to go on. I've got a busy day. I'm going to go on and do something else. Doesn't he? My prayer for you is that you will not be lukewarm. My prayer for you is that you will not keep God at bay like a little child swinging his arms. Of course, God is not like that. God's more powerful than that. But we try to do that with him, try to give him the stiff arm. And my prayer is that you will not do that. My prayer is that you will recognize that God is working in your life and that you will seek to find out what is the direction of the force that he's doing. What is he calling you to do? Did he bring you here in San Jose for a reason or a purpose? Did he bring you here to San Jose even for vacation for this week for reason and purpose? If we had canceled church and gone down to Disneyland like the Casters and Youngs and all of them did this week, would he have done it for a purpose or just for us to do nothing? Can God act in Disneyland just like he acts here? Can God act in San Jose just like he acts other places? Can God act in our lives just as he acted to create the world? He can. We'll talk about this in the next two weeks. He can, and my prayer for you is that you will allow him to do that, and you will be on the same page with him to do that. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord, and uh, we just thank you that you are working in our lives, that you are active in our lives. God, that you care enough about us that you've not only created the world, but you created us with the ability to love you and to be on the same page with you. Father, I pray this morning that each of us would desire to know you, to be committed to you in all, in all ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.